0: Essays, Second Series, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essay Number Eight, Nominalist and Realist. Read by Bob Newfeld. In countless upward-striving waves the moon-drawn tide-wave strives. In thousand far-transplanted grafts the parent fruit survives. So in the newborn millions the perfect Adam lives. Not less are summer mornings dear to every child they wake, and each with novel life his sphere fills for his proper sake. I cannot often enough say that a man is only a relative and representative nature. Each is a hint of the truth, but far enough from being that truth which yet he quite newly and inevitably suggests to us. If I seek it in him, I shall not find it. Could any man conduct into me the pure stream of that which he pretends to be? Long afterwards I find that quality elsewhere which he promised me. The genius of the Platonists is intoxicating to the student, yet how few particulars of it can I detach from all their books? The man momentarily stands for the thought, but will not bear examination, and a society of men will cursorily represent well enough a certain quality and culture, for example chivalry or beauty of manners, but separate them, and there is no gentleman and no lady in the group. The least hint sets us on the pursuit of a character which no man realizes. We have such exorbitant eyes that on seeing the smallest arc, we complete the curve, and when the curtain is lifted from the diagram which it seemed to veil, we are vexed to find that no more was drawn than just that fragment of an arc which we first beheld. We are greatly too liberal in our construction of each other's faculty and promise. Exactly what the parties have already done, they shall do again, but that which we inferred from their nature and inception, they will not do. That is in nature, but not in them. That happens in the world, which we often witness in a public debate. Each of the speakers expresses himself imperfectly. No one of them hears much that another says, such is the preoccupation of mind of each, and the audience, who have only to hear and not to speak, judge very wisely and superiorly how wrong-headed and unskillful is each of the debaters to his own affair. Great men, or men of great gifts, you shall easily find, but symmetrical men never. When I meet a pure intellectual force, or a generosity of affection, I believe here then is man— and am presently mortified by the discovery that this individual is no more available to his own or to the general ends than his companion, because the power which drew my respect is not supported by the total symphony of his talents. All persons exist to society by some shining trait of beauty or utility which they have. We borrow the proportions of the man from that one fine feature, and finish the portrait symmetrically which is false, for the rest of his body is small or deformed. I observe a person who makes a good public appearance, and conclude thence the perfection of his private character, on which this is based. But he has no private character. He is a graceful cloak, or lay-figure for holidays, All our poets, heroes, and saints fail utterly in some one or in many parts to satisfy our idea, fail to draw our spontaneous interest, and so leave us without any hope of realization but in our own future. Our exaggeration of all fine characters arises from the fact that we identify each in turn with the soul. We consecrate a great deal of nonsense because it was allowed by great men there is none without his foible. I verily believe if an angel should come to chant the chorus of the moral law, he would eat too much gingerbread, or take liberties with private letters, or do some precious atrocity. It is bad enough that our geniuses cannot do anything useful, but it is worse that no man is fit for society who has fine traits. He is admired at a distance but he cannot come near without appearing a cripple. The men of fine parts protect themselves by solitude, or by courtesy, or by satire, or by an acid worldly manner, each concealing as he best can his incapacity for useful association. But they want either love or self-reliance. Our native love of reality joins with this experience to teach us a little reserve, and to dissuade a too-sudden surrender to the brilliant qualities of persons. Young people admire talents or particular excellences. As we grow older, we value total powers and effects, as the impression, the quality, the spirit of men and things. The genius is all. The man, it is his system. We do not try a solitary word or act, but his habit. The acts which you praise, I praise not, since they are departures from his faith, and are mere compliances. The magnetism, which arranges tribes and races in one polarity, is alone to be respected. The men are steel filings. Yet we unjustly select a particle, and say, O oh, steel filing number one, what heart drawings I feel to thee, and what prodigious virtues are these of thine, How constitutional to thee, and incommunicable! Whilst we speak, the lodestone is withdrawn. Down falls our filing in a heap with the rest, and we continue our mummery to the wretched shaving. Let us go for universals, for the magnetism, not for the needles. Human life and its persons are poor empirical pretensions. A personal influence is an ignis fatuus if they say it is great it is great if they say it is small it is small you see it and you see it not by turns it borrows all its size from the momentary estimation of the speakers the will of the wisp vanishes if you go too near vanishes if you go too far and only blazes at one angle who can tell if washington be a great man or no who can tell if franklin be Yes, or any but the twelve, or six, or three great gods of fame, and they too loom and fade before the eternal. We are amphibious creatures, weaponed for two elements, having two sets of faculties, the particular and the catholic. We adjust our instrument for general observation, and sweep the heavens as easily as we pick out a single figure in the terrestrial landscape we are practically skilful in detecting elements for which we have no place in our theory and no name thus we are very sensible of an atmospheric influence in men and in bodies of men not accounted for in an arithmetical addition of all their measurable properties there is a genius of a nation which is not to be found in the numerical citizens but which characterizes the society england strong punctual practical well-spoken england i shall not find if i should go to the island to seek it in the parliament in the playhouse at dinner-tables i might see a great number of rich ignorant book-read conventional proud men many old women and not anywhere the englishmen who made the good speeches combined the accurate engines and did the bold and nervous deeds It is even worse in America, where, from the intellectual quickness of the race, the genius of the country is more splendid in its promise and more slight in its performance. Webster cannot do the work of Webster. We conceived distinctly enough the French, the Spanish, the German genius, and it is not the less real that perhaps we should not meet in either of those nations a single individual who corresponded with the type. We infer the spirit of the nation in great measure from the language, which is a sort of monument to which each forcible individual, in a course of many hundred years, has contributed a stone. And universally, a good example of this social force is the veracity of language, which cannot be debauched. In any controversy concerning morals, an appeal may be made with safety to the sentiments which the language of the people expresses. Proverbs, words, and grammar inflections convey the public sense with more purity and precision than the wisest individual. In the famous dispute with the nominalists, the realists had a good deal of reason. General ideas are essences. They are our gods. They round and ennoble the most partial and sordid way of living. Our proclivity to details cannot quite degrade our life, and divest it of poetry. The day-laborer is reckoned as standing at the foot of the social scale, yet he is saturated with the laws of the world. His measures are the hours. Morning and night, solstice and equinox, geometry, astronomy, and all the lovely accidents of nature play through his mind. Money, which represents the prose of life, and which is hardly spoken of in parlours without an apology, is in its effects and laws as beautiful as roses. Property keeps the accounts of the world, and is always moral. The property will be found where the labour, the wisdom, and the virtue have been in nations, in classes, and the whole lifetime considered with the compensations in the individual also. How wise the world appears! When the laws and usages of nations are largely detailed, and the insurers and notaries' offices and the completeness of the municipal system is considered, nothing is left out. If you go into the markets and the custom houses, the insurers and notaries' offices, the offices of sealers of weights and measures, of inspection of provisions, it will appear as if one man had made it all. Wherever you go, a wit like your own has been before you, and has realized its thought. The Eleusinian mysteries, the Egyptian architecture, the Indian astronomy, the Greek sculpture, show that there always were seeing and knowing men in the planet. The world is full of Masonic ties, of guilds, of secret and public legions of honor. That of scholars, for example, and that of gentlemen, fraternizing with the upper class of every country and every culture i am very much struck in literature by the appearance that one person wrote all the books as if the editor of a journal planted his body of reporters in different parts of the field of action and relieved some by others from time to time but there is such equality and identity both of judgment and point of view in the narrative that it is plainly the work of one all-seeing all-hearing gentleman i looked into pope's odyssey yesterday it is as correct and elegant after our canon of to-day as if it were newly written the modernness of all good books seems to give me an existence as wide as man what is well done i feel as if i did what is ill done i reck not of shakespeare's passages of passion for example, in Lear and Hamlet, are in the very dialect of the present year. I am faithful again to the whole over the members in my use of books. I find the most pleasure in reading a book in a manner least flattering to the author. I read Proclus, and sometimes Plato, as I might read a dictionary, for a mechanical help to the fancy and the imagination. I read for the lusters, as if one should use a fine picture in a chromatic experiment for its rich colors. Tis not Proclus, but a piece of nature and fate that I explore. It is a greater joy to see the author's author than himself. A higher pleasure of the same kind I found lately at a concert, where I went to hear Handel's Messiah, as the master overpowered the littleness and incapableness of the performer's And made them conductors of his electricity, so it was easy to observe what efforts nature was making, through so many hoarse, wooden, and imperfect persons, to produce beautiful voices, fluid and soul guided men and women. The genius of nature was paramount at the oratorio. The preference of the genius to the parts is the secret of that deification of art which is found in all superior minds. Art in the artist is proportion, or a habitual respect to the whole by an eye loving beauty and details, and the wonder and the charm of it is the sanity in insanity which it denotes. Proportion is almost impossible to human beings. There is no one who does not exaggerate. In conversation men are encumbered with personality and talk too much. In modern sculpture, picture, and poetry, the beauty is miscellaneous. The artist works here and there, and at all points, adding and adding, instead of unfolding the unit of his thought. Beautiful details we must have, or no artist, but they must be means and never other. The eye must not lose sight for a moment of the purpose. Lively boys write to their ear and eye, and the cool reader finds nothing but sweet jingles in it. When they grow older, they respect the argument. We obey the same intellectual integrity when we study, in exceptions, the law of the world. Anomalous facts, as the never quite obsolete rumors of magic and demonology, and the new allegations of phrenologists and neurologists are of ideal use. They are good indications. Homeopathy is insignificant as an art of healing, but of great value as criticism on the hygia or medical practice of the time. So with mesmerism, Swedenborgism, Fourierism, and the Millennial Church, they are poor pretensions enough, but good criticism on the science, philosophy, and preaching of the day, for these abnormal insights of the adepts ought to be normal, and things of course. All things show us that on every side we are very near to the best. It seems not worthwhile to execute with too much pains some one intellectual or aesthetical or civil feat, when presently the dream will scatter, and we shall burst into universal power. The reason of idleness and of crime is the deferring of our hopes. Whilst we are waiting, we beguile the time with jokes, with sleep, with eating, and with crimes thus we settle it into our cool libraries that all the agents with which we deal are subalterns which we can well afford to let pass and life will be simpler when we live at the center and flout the surfaces i wish to speak with all respect of persons but sometimes i must pinch myself to keep awake and preserve the due decorum they melt so fast into each other that they are like grass and trees and it needs an effort to treat them as individuals though the uninspired man certainly finds persons a conveniency in household matters the divine man does not respect them he sees them as a rack of clouds or a fleet of ripples which the wind drives over the surface of the water but this is flat rebellion nature will not be buddhist she resents generalizing and insults the philosopher in every moment with a million of fresh particulars. It is all idle talking, as much as a man is a whole, so is he also a part, and it were partial not to see it. What you say in your pompous distribution only distributes you into your class and section. You have not got rid of parts by denying them, but are the more partial. You are one thing. But nature is one thing and the other thing in the same moment. She will not remain orbed in a thought, but rushes into persons, and when each person, inflamed to a fury of personality, would conquer all things to his poor crotchet, she raises up against him another person, and by many persons incarnates again a sort of whole. She will have all. Nick Bottom cannot play all the parts, work it how he may. There will be somebody else, and the world will be round. Everything must have its flower, or effort at the beautiful, coarser, or finer according to its stuff. They relieve and recommend each other, and the sanity of society is a balance of a thousand insanities. She punishes abstractionists, and will only forgive an induction which is rare and casual. We like to come to a height of land and see the landscape just as we value a general remark in conversation. But it is not the intention of nature that we should live by general views. We fetch fire and water, run about all day among the shops and markets, and get our clothes and shoes made and mended, and are the victims of these details. And once in a fortnight, we arrive perhaps at a rational moment. If we were not thus infatuated, if we saw the real from hour to hour we should not be here to write and to read but should have been burned or frozen long ago she would never get anything done if she suffered admirable crichtons and universal geniuses she loves better a wheelwright who dreams all night of wheels and a groom who is part of his horse for she is full of work and these are her hands As the frugal farmer takes care that his cattle shall eat down the rowan, and swine shall eat the waste of his house, and poultry shall pick the crumbs, so our economical mother dispatches a new genius and habit of mind into every district and condition of existence, plants an eye wherever a new ray of light can fall, and gathering up into some man every property in the universe, establishes thousandfold occult mutual attractions among her offspring that all this wash and waste of power may be imparted and exchanged. Great dangers undoubtedly accrue from this incarnation and distribution of the Godhead, hence nature has her maligners, as if she were Circe, and Alfonso of Castile fancied he could have given useful advice. But she does not go unprovided, she has hellebore at the bottom of the cup, solitude would ripen a plentiful crop of despots. The recluse thinks of men as having his manner, or as not having his manner, and as having degrees of it, more or less. But when he comes into a public assembly, he sees that men have very different manners from his own, and in their way admirable. In his childhood and youth, he has had many checks and censures, and thinks modestly enough of his own endowment. When afterwards, He comes to unfold it in propitious circumstance. It seems the only talent. He is delighted with his success, and accounts himself already the fellow of the great. But he goes into a mob, into a banking-house, into a mechanic's shop, into a mill, into a laboratory, into a ship, into a camp, and in each new place he is no better than an idiot. Other talents take place and rule the hour. The rotation which whirls every leaf and pebble to the meridian reaches to every gift of man, and we all take turns at the top. For nature, who abhors mannerism, has set her heart on breaking up all styles and tricks, and it is so much easier to do what one has done before than to do a new thing that there is a perpetual tendency to a set mode. In every conversation, even the highest, there is a certain trick which may be soon learned by an acute person, and then that particular style continued indefinitely. Each man, too, is a tyrant in tendency, because he would impose his idea on others, and their trick is their natural defense. Jesus would absorb the race, but Tom Paine, or the coarsest blasphemer, helps humanity by resisting this exuberance of power hence the immense benefit of party in politics as it reveals faults of character in a chief which the intellectual force of the persons with ordinary opportunity and not hurled into aphelion by hatred could not have seen since we are all so stupid what benefit that there should be too stupidity it is like that brute advantage so essential to astronomy of having the diameter of the earth's orbit for a base of its triangles democracy is morose and runs to anarchy but in the state and in the schools it is indispensable to resist the consolidation of all men into a few men if john was perfect why are you and i alive as long as any man exists there is some need of him let him fight for his own a new poet has appeared a new character approached us why should we refuse to eat bread until we have found his regiment and section in our old army files? Why not a new man? Here is a new enterprise of Brook Farm, of Skinny Attalese, of Northampton. Why so impatient to baptize them Essenes, or Port Royalists, or Shakers, or by any known any effete name? Let it be a new way of living. Why have only two or three ways of life, and not thousands? Every man is wanted and no man is wanted much We come this time for condiments not for corn We want the great genius only for joy for one star more in our constellation for one tree more in our grove But he thinks we wish to belong to him as he wishes to occupy us He greatly mistakes us. I think I have done well if I have acquired a new word from a good author and my business with him is to find my own, though it were only to melt him down into an epithet, or an image for daily use. Into paint will I grind thee, my bride. To embroil the confusion, and make it impossible to arrive at any general statement, when we have insisted on the imperfection of individuals, our affections and our experience urge that every individual is entitled to honor, and a very generous treatment is sure to be repaid. A recluse sees only two or three persons, and allows them all their room. They spread themselves at large. The statesman looks at many, and compares the few habitually with others, and these look less. Yet are they not entitled to this generosity of reception, and is not munificence the means of insight? For though gamesters say that the cards beat all the players, though they were never so skilful, yet in the contest we are now considering, the players are also the game, and share the power of the cards. If you criticize a fine genius, the odds are that you are out of your reckoning, and instead of the poet, are censuring your own caricature of him. For there is something spheral and infinite in every man, especially in every genius, which, if you can come very near him, sports with all your limitations, for rightly every man is a channel through which heaven floweth, and whilst I fancied I was criticizing him, I was censuring, or rather terminating, my own soul. After taxing Goethe as a courtier, artificial, unbelieving, worldly, I took up his book of Helena, and found him an Indian of the wilderness, a piece of pure nature like an apple or an oak, large as morning or night, and virtuous as a briar rose. But care is taken that the whole tune shall be played. If we were not kept among surfaces, everything would be large and universal. Now the excluded attributes burst in on us with the more brightness that they have been excluded. Your turn now, my turn next, is the rule of the game. The universality being hindered in its primary form Comes in the secondary form of all sides. The points come in succession to the meridian, and by the speed of rotation a new whole is formed. Nature keeps herself whole and her representation complete in the experience of each mind. She suffers no seat to be vacant in her college. It is the secret of the world that all things subsist and do not die, but only retire a little from sight, and afterwards return again. WHATEVER DOES NOT CONCERN US IS CONCEALED FROM US. AS SOON AS A PERSON IS NO LONGER RELATED TO OUR PRESENT WELL-BEING, HE IS CONCEALED, OR DIES, AS WE SAY. REALLY, ALL THINGS AND PERSONS ARE RELATED TO US, BUT ACCORDING TO OUR NATURE, THEY ACT ON US NOT AT ONCE, BUT IN SUCCESSION, AND WE ARE MADE AWARE OF THEIR PRESENCE, ONE AT A TIME. ALL PERSONS, ALL THINGS WHICH WE HAVE KNOWN, ARE HERE PRESENT and many more than we see. The world is full. As the ancients said, the world is a plenum, or solid, and if we saw all things that really surround us, we should be imprisoned and unable to move. For though nothing is impassable to the soul, but all things are pervious to it, and like highways, yet this is only whilst the soul does not see them. As soon as the soul sees any object, it stops before that object therefore the divine providence which keeps the universe open in every direction to the soul conceals all the furniture and all the persons that do not concern a particular soul from the senses of that individual through solidest eternal things the man finds his road as if they did not subsist and does not once suspect their being as soon as he needs a new object suddenly he beholds it and no longer attempts to pass through it But takes another way. When he has exhausted for the time the nourishment to be drawn from any one person or thing, that object is withdrawn from his observation, and though still in his immediate neighborhood, he does not suspect its presence. Nothing is dead. Men feign themselves dead, and endure mock funerals and mournful obituaries, and there they stand, looking out of the window, sound and well, in some new and strange disguise. Jesus is not dead. He is very well alive, nor John, nor Paul, nor Mohammed, nor Aristotle. At times we believe we have seen them all, and could easily tell the names under which they go. If we cannot make voluntary and conscious steps in the admirable science of universals, let us see the parts wisely, and infer the genius of nature from the best particulars with a becoming charity. What is best in each kind is an index of what should be the average of that thing. Love shows me the opulence of nature by disclosing to me in my friend a hidden wealth, and I infer an equal depth of good in every other direction. It is commonly said by farmers that a good pear or apple costs no more time or pains to rear than a poor one. So I would have no work of art, no speech or action or thought or friend, but the best. The end and the means, the gamester and the game. Life is made up of the intermixture and reaction of these two amicable powers, whose marriage appears beforehand monstrous, as each denies and tends to abolish the other. We must reconcile the contradictions as we can, but their discord and their concord introduce wild absurdities into our thinking and speech. No sentence will hold the whole truth, and the only way in which we can be just is by giving ourselves the lie. Speech is better than silence. Silence is better than speech. All things are in contact. Every atom has a sphere of repulsion. Things are and are not at the same time, and the like. All the universe over, there is but one thing, this old two-face creator-creature, mind-matter, right-wrong. Of which any proposition may be affirmed or denied. Very fitly, therefore, I assert that every man is a partialist, that nature secures him as an instrument by self-conceit, preventing the tendencies to religion and science, and now further assert that each man's genius, being nearly and affectionately explored, he is justified in his individuality, as his nature is found to be immense and now i add that every man is a universalist also and as our earth whilst it spins on its own axis spins all the time around the sun through the celestial spaces so the least of its rational children the most dedicated to his private affair works out though as it were under a disguise the universal problem we fancy men are individuals so are pumpkins but every pumpkin in the field goes through every point of pumpkin history. The rabid Democrat, as soon as he is senator and rich man, has ripened beyond possibility of sincere radicalism, and unless he can resist the sun, he must be conservative the remainder of his days. Lord Eldon said in his old age that, if he were to begin life again, he would be damned but he would begin as agitator we hide this universality if we can, but it appears at all points. We are as ungrateful as children. There is nothing we cherish and strive to draw to us, but in some hour we turn and rend it. We keep a running fire of sarcasm at ignorance and the life of the senses. Then goes by perchance a fair girl, a piece of life, gay and happy, and making the commonest offices beautiful by the energy and heart with which she does them, and seeing this, we admire and love her and them, and say, Lo, a genuine creature of the fair earth, not dissipated or too early ripened by books, philosophy, religion, society, or care, insinuating a treachery and contempt for all we had so long loved and wrought in ourselves and others if we could have any security against moods, if the profoundest prophet could be holden to his words, and the hearer who is ready to sell all and join the crusade could have any certificate that to-morrow his prophet shall not unsay his testimony. But the truth sits veiled there on the bench, and never interposes an adamantine syllable, and the most sincere and revolutionary doctrine put as if the ark of God were carried forward some furlongs, and planted there for the succour of the world, shall in a few weeks be coldly set aside by the same speaker as Morbid. I thought I was right, but I was not. And the same immeasurable credulity demanded for new audacities. If we were not of all opinions, if we did not in any moment shift the platform on which we stand, and look and speak from another if there could be any regulation any one-hour rule that a man should never leave his point of view without sound or trumpet i am always insincere as always knowing there are other moods how sincere and confidential we can be saying that all lies in the mind and yet go away feeling that all is yet unsaid from the incapacity of the parties to know each other although they use the same words my companion assumes to know my mood and habit of thought and we go on from explanation to explanation until all is said which words can and we leave matters just as they were at first because of that vicious assumption is it that every man believes every other to be an incurable partialist and himself a universalist i talked yesterday with a pair of philosophers I endeavored to show my good men that I love everything by turns and nothing long, that I loved the center, but doted on the superficies, that I loved man, if men seemed to me mice and rats, that I revered saints, but woke up glad that the old pagan world stood its ground and died hard, that I was glad of men of every gift and nobility, but could not live in their arms. Could they but once understand that I loved to know that they existed, and heartily wished them Godspeed, yet, out of my poverty of life and thought, had no word or welcome from them when they came to see me, and could well consent to their living in Oregon, for any claim I felt on them, it would be a great satisfaction. End of essay number eight.